in the extended family of our congregation. Had two funerals this week. Just reminds us, I think, that death really doesn't pay attention to holidays. Uh, that suffering really doesn't uh, take a vacation just because it's Christmas time and uh, life doesn't get happy all of a sudden uh, just because it's that time of year when we all say Merry Christmas. That's kind of a myth uh, that, that we cling to uh, sort of desperately as a culture that, that we can, you know, just for this, this moment in time, just for these couple weeks or the period from Thanksgiving to Christmas, we can just muscle through it and, and say, well, this is a special, this is a happy time of year, so nothing bad's going to happen now. Uh, it's a Christmas time, so we're going to be happy and it, it's going to be fine. We're going to pretend like nothing bad can happen because it's the holidays. Um, and, and not just at Christmas time, I mean, I, I think that we take that tack uh, a lot as a culture. We, we, we just want to deny that, that suffering exists. We want to deny that death happens. And so we pretend. We, we just fill our lives with entertainment or it doesn't have to be Christmas time. We fill our lives with busyness. We fill our lives with whatever it is we can cram in our lives so that we don't have to think about the fact that life will end. We don't have to think about the fact that bad things will happen until they finally do. And we realize that pretending didn't help anything. See, that's, that's the best, though, that the world has. That's the best that people outside of the church have to offer, is to say, well, okay, maybe we'll acknowledge that death will happen, that suf- suffering comes, but uh, let's just pre- have the best time we can until it happens. Let's just pretend that it won't get us, and, and we'll, just, we'll deal with it when it happens, but let's just, let's just pretend. Now, how wonderful, though. How wonderful for you and for me, that that's not the best that there is. That we actually have a much better and satisfying way to deal with the reality of death and the reality of suffering and sorrow. Uh, We have the message of the cross. See, what I want to talk to you about today uh, is what the Puritan pastor John Owen famously called the death of death in the death of Christ. The death of death in the death of Christ. I want to talk to you about this event in Mark 15. We're wrapping up the book of Mark. Uh, We're now at the moment when Jesus dies. And in that moment when he dies, what we see is that he, in his death, kills death. And he provides for us a greater hope than this world has to offer greater than just pasting on a smile during the holidays or entertaining ourselves. Uh, until we're confronted with sorrow. No, we have a better hope, a hope that Jesus has purchased for us in his death. It was a very high price that he paid. He was forsaken by God. But in that forsakenness, he purchased for us acceptance with God. And he defeated death. We're going to focus in Mark 15, verses 33 through 30. Nine. I want to start back up in 25 just to give us the context. We've been seeing the life of Jesus, following it through. We're in his last week, his last day. It's Friday. He's been taken in. He's been tried unjustly, handed over to Pilate. 
unjustly condemned to crucifixion and death. He's been mocked and humiliated. He's been hung on the cross. And now we pick it up in verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. First thing I want to point out to you in the events that happened here in Mark 15 is that Jesus was forsaken by God. Jesus was forsaken by God. There's something supernatural and really just flat out weird that happens in verse 33. Uh, the sixth hour, there is darkness that comes over the whole earth. So, the way they're telling time here is they're measuring time from dawn, roughly. So the sixth hour of the day would be about noon. So the sixth hour, noon, till the, uh, till the ninth hour, which would be like 3 p.m., there was darkness that came over the whole land. Now, this is a supernatural darkness. This is not a solar eclipse. Uh, this would not have happened during that time. Passover was, was during a full moon, so it couldn't have happened at that moment. There wasn't a solar eclipse. It was an act of God, a supernatural period of three hours of darkness that covered the land. Now, what's the significance of that? Uh, well, biblically, darkness has a pretty specific meaning. Uh, there's plenty of examples in the Bible of darkness being used as a symbol of judgment, specifically of a, of a separation from God. Uh, the classic example is in Exodus 10. It's the ninth plague against the people of Egypt. As God is trying to get his people to come out of Egypt and Pharaoh is saying no, the ninth plague was that there was a period of darkness three days long where the entire land of Egypt was, uh, was in, covered in darkness where the, while the place where the Israelites were living had light. And this was a prolonged period of judgment where God shut down their lives for three days uh, because they refused to acknowledge him. In the Gospels, we also see darkness used time and time again as this image of judgment and separation from God. Uh, Jesus often refers to hell as the place of outer darkness. He tells stories about people uh, coming together for parties, for wedding feasts, and, and you want to be at the party. You want to be where the light and the joy and the action and the love is. But the people who don't believe in Jesus, they get kicked out of the party. They don't get in. They get cast out into the outer darkness 
where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, there's many other examples we could point to, but it's clear in the Bible that darkness is a sign of judgment. It is a sign of separation from God, getting kicked out of the party. You know, that the image would have had a lot more punch for people in that day. We've lost a little bit about, of that because we've gotten so good at conquering darkness uh, with our electric lights, our street lights, our headlights, our, our fancy flashlights. Uh, we don't really pay much attention to darkness. If it's dark outside, we just turn on the light. Uh, but in a, in a culture where you don't have that easy access to, uh, to light, you know, no electricity, you've got candles or, or um, lanterns or things like that, uh, it, darkness is a lot more palatable. It's a lot more intimidating. It's a lot more debilitating for your life. Uh, I've, I've had probably one experience of total darkness in my life. I didn't like it. Uh, it was a couple years ago. We went uh, in a cave in Missouri. Uh, we took our family there, and it was a tour, and so we're going back into this cave, uh, and we got back into the, the, the back cavern, so totally removed from the entrance, no light coming in. Uh, and the guide said, okay, now I want you to all turn off your flashlights. And so we turned off our flashlights. And as soon as we turned off the flashlights, I wanted to turn mine back on uh, because it was completely dark. There was no, your eyes getting used to it. No, there was, because there was nothing to get used to. It was totally dark. There was no light. And, and I had an itchy trigger finger. I wanted to, to turn that flashlight back on because I started to think, well, we are way back in this cave. And, and there is no way that I could find my way out of here if this light doesn't come back on. And what if somehow, like, all of our lights don't come back on? I mean, you know, I just, I can't handle this anymore. What, you know, I'm just, I was afraid. I was terrified. And it was debilitating. Because real darkness, total darkness, you can't do anything. It's a judgment. It, it shuts down your life. And that's what's going on here. God is bringing a judgment on the land. He is bringing a darkness that is terrifying and debilitating. And when Jesus cries out in verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's explaining to us what is going on in that three hours of darkness. What's going on in those three hours of darkness is that Jesus himself is experiencing the judgment and separation from God that we all deserve. So in verse 34, Jesus says a very hard thing. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And people wrestle with that and, and, and come up with all sorts of ways to spin that, to, to, to try to, to make it less uncomfortable as to what that actually means. But what it means is what it says, that Jesus, in that moment was forsaken, separated from the Father. Now, why would that happen? Well, by this time, I think many of you remember Mark 10, 45, Jesus' purpose statement in Mark as to why he came. He said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came because he was going to give his life as a ransom for us. So what he's going through here, in some way, must be what we deserve. We deserve to be separated from God. We deserve to experience that judgment, that separation. Uh, that, that's very clear as you look through the Bible, as you read the Old Testament, the New Testament, you see time and time again, this is how it works. 
Uh, in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, after God has given the law through Moses and really summed it up, said this is all the stuff that you are supposed to do, he says, cursed is everyone who does not keep every one of these laws. Deuteronomy 27, 26, if you want to look that up later. It says, if you don't keep all the laws, you are cursed. Okay. Isaiah 59, verse 2, explains what that means a little bit. Isaiah 59, 2. It says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and God. So, if you don't keep the whole law, you're cursed. What's that curse mean? Well, it means that you're separated from God. Why would, why would that separate you from God? Why would sin separate you from God? Because God is holy. Habakkuk 1.13 says, God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil. This holy God, this perfect God, does not tolerate evil in his presence. So if we sin, which we have, then we get separated from his presence. If we don't keep the whole law, we're cursed. We're condemned. We deserve death, eternal separation and judgment and darkness. And that's what Jesus took. That's what's going on here as Jesus hangs on the cross from noon to 3 p.m. on that Friday is that he is bearing all of this separation and forsakenness from God that we deserve. This is all over the Bible. I'll give you a few references to see what the Bible says about this. Uh, Isaiah 53, 6. We've been there a few times, Isaiah 53. Classic passage about the, the prophecy of what Jesus is going to do. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we've all done wrong, we've all gone astray, we've all got this sin, this God-forsakenness that we deserve, and God says, I'm going to take that sin, and I'm going to put that on Jesus. Uh, New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.21, same idea. <clears throat> God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus, the one who knew no sin, to become sin, to be, be so identified with our sin that Paul could say he made him become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin transferred from us to Jesus in that moment that he would bear the curse. Galatians 3.13 picks up that Deuteronomy reference and says, we all deserve to be cursed. Christ became a curse for us. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. You see, what happened in this moment when there is darkness for three hours and Jesus, the Son of God himself, cries out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook him because in that moment Jesus had on himself all the sins that we have ever committed, past, present, and future, and God was pouring out his wrath on his son because Jesus came to pay that ransom. This is why Gethsemane was so hard for him. Because Jesus looked forward to the cross and he knew that he was going to be separated from his father. And he didn't want it but he knew that this is why he had come. And he was committed to submitting to will of the Father and seeing it through. 
abandonment, being forsaken, it's hard. It's hard even in the, the most trifling circumstances. Uh, but this is, a, this is an incredible loss of relationship. Uh, the, the pain that you feel when you're abandoned, when you're forsaken by someone, is proportional to the value that you have on that relationship, right? Like if someone comes up to me after I've just met them or I've met them once and they say, I never want to see you again, that's really not going to have a lot of impact. Uh, I'm, it's not going to bother me that much because like, well, I didn't know you before anyway. I don't really care if we lose this relationship. Um, you're clearly unhinged. I don't know what's going on. Uh, but, but if it's just that, that, that one little relationship, you know, a, a one-time meeting, and they say, I don't want to see you anymore, that's not a big deal. But, oh, if my, if my family were to say that to me, if my wife were to say, I don't want to know you anymore, I, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore, if th that, that level of forsakenness, well, then it just goes through the roof, right? Well, now, now multiply that uh, by infinity, and you get to a glimpse of what Jesus is experiencing on the cross here, because this is no, no uh, one-off relationship. This is no even human relationship. This is an infinite relationship between the second person of the Trinity and the first, between the Father and the Son, that's gone on for all eternity in perfect love and harmony. And that is what is being broken in this moment as Jesus takes the sins of the world on himself. This is what we deserved, to be forsaken by God. But Christ loved us so much that he was willing to endure that great pain and loss for our sake. And the great good news is that it worked. The second thing I want you to see from the passage today is that while Jesus was forsaken by God, his God-forsakenness secured our access to God. This is the next thing that happens. His God-forsakenness secures our access to God. Um, it worked. How do we know that it worked? Well, just look at verse 38. Uh, in verse 37, Jesus breathes his last, he dies, and after he dies, after this death is finished, in verse 38 it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So how do we know that it worked, that this sacrifice of Jesus was effective and actually accomplished something? Because of what happened in verse 38, this second supernatural act. The first supernatural act we see is this act of judgment, the darkness that comes for three hours over the land. Supernatural, clearly an act of judgment. This is God pouring out his wrath on Jesus. But this first supernatural act is followed by a second one, which happens in verse 38, the giant curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelt, uh, from the rest of the temple where everybody could go. That curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, supernatural. God did it. And those two acts go together. The first act is a, an act of judgment, God pouring out his wrath on Jesus. The second act is an act of acceptance, God saying, the way to me is now open. You see, this curtain in the temple, it's got a long history. Uh, as, you know, as an idea, this wasn't the same exact curtain, but when God uh, told the nation of Israel about how to make the tabernacle, back after they got out of Egypt, and this is in Exodus, he says, here's what I want you to do as you're traveling through the wilderness. Make this portable worship tent. 
And this is where I'm going to, to dwell, and his, his, his presence would dwell in this tent in a pillar of fire as they traveled. And he told them to lay it out so that there's a wall around the outside so not everybody can come in. And then once you come in, in past that wall, there's the tabernacle, and there's two main sections of the tabernacle. There's the holy place where the priest can go in, and then there's the most holy place where God's presence dwells in the Ark of the Covenant. And the high priest can go in there once every year after intense purification to make atonement for sin. Uh, and then when they made the temple after that, um, you know, they settled down and they built the temple. It was the same pattern where you had the outer courts. And at this time you've got the outer court. The most outer court is for the Gentiles. So Gentiles can, can, can go into the outer court. But then there's another court where um, Jewish people can go in there. And then there's another court where the Jewish men can go in. And then you get to the temple and the priests can go into the first room. But then you've got this giant curtain and it's a place where nobody can go except for one person, the high priest, once a year, the presence of God. And so this system that God set up, it's just screaming to us, there is no one in the world who can freely enter the presence of God. Right? That, that's what the temple setup is all about. That's what the curtain represents. It's a barrier between God's presence and everybody in the world. You've got one person, the high priest, who can enter this place once a year. And then with great fear and trepidation. But when Jesus died, when Jesus died, that whole system was demolished. There was no barrier anymore between God and man. The barrier between God and man before was sin, right? That's what separated us from God. And so now that Jesus has paid the penalty, all the full wrath of God has been poured out on him. He's taken all the forsakenness, all the removal and separation from God. There's no more distance left. There's no more forsakenness left for you and me. There's no more barrier that you have to get through, no more hurdle to jump over. The curtain is torn in two. You have access to God. You know, in John, he records Jesus' last words. When he died, he said, It is finished. It's finished. After the one supernatural symbol of judgment in darkness, there came a definitive supernatural symbol of acceptance. It's like we were all standing out in the darkness and in the cold, seeing the party going on from a distance. And Jesus throws open the door and he says, come on in. And that's what we must do. So the third thing I want you to see here is Jesus was forsaken by God. His God-forsakenness secures our access to God. So then we must respond in faith to that death of Jesus. This is where we look to the centurion, the Roman centurion. In verse 39, it says, The centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So here we have a startling confession from a Roman centurion. This is the man who was in charge of putting Jesus to death. He confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you've been paying attention in your reading and study of Mark, you'll recognize that this is the first time in Mark that a human has acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God. In Mark 1.1, he told us at the very beginning, he said, this is the story 
about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark told us this is who he is. Uh, but up until this point, God has acknowledged that Jesus is his son, and the demons, and those possessed by demons, have acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God. But no person has acknowledged it yet. The disciples have gotten close. They've said he's the Christ. They saw that he was the king. But they have not yet confessed the truth about who Jesus really is. The first one to do it is the man in charge of putting him to death. It's surprising that he'd be the one to do it. He was a Roman. The Romans often would call their king, Caesar, the son of God. And yet there's something that the centurion saw that inspired him to say this about Jesus. In, in verse 39, I'm not exactly sure how it's worded in your translations, but the emphasis is on the fact that he saw something special in the way that Jesus died. It says he saw that in this way, or thusly, uh, he died, that, he, that in this way Jesus breathed his last. He, he saw something in the way that Jesus died. Now, now this guy had seen lots of death. Uh, he was a Roman centurion. He was a hard man, had to work his way up from the ranks. He, was, uh, he, he had put people to death before. This is surely not his first crucifixion. Uh, he has certainly seen battles and violence and scourgings and beatings. He knows how people die, and he looks at Jesus, and he sees something special. He sees in this death that Jesus is, is, is truly offering himself as a sacrifice for others, that he's not railing against the injustice, the clear injustice that's been going on all the way up to his death. Uh, the, the centurion looks at the way Jesus dies and he says, there's something unique here. Obviously, this man is not an ordinary man and this death is not an ordinary death. This has to be the Son of God. And Mark and, and, and God uh, is inviting us to make that same confession. He's inviting us to look at this death and to say, clearly this is not an ordinary death. This is not an ordinary man. This is the Son of God, and his death is an atoning sacrifice for my sins. And so he's inviting all of us to make that confession, to say, Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. I know that I deserve to be forsaken because of my sins. And yet in your death, you have secured access for me to God himself. And I accept that. The fact that it's the centurion who makes the first confession should be encouraging to us. Because if the man who put Jesus to death can confess Christ and be saved, there's hope for all of us. And yet some of us remain in the darkness. We're being invited in from the darkness, but some of us resist. So I want to close with a couple benefits of the light. I want you to see that this is of inestimable value. The good news of the cross, and we could camp out here all day, all week. This is going to be a very superficial treatment. Uh, but the good news of the cross, first of all, is that there's nothing left to do. Um, some of us are 
persisting in darkness uh, because we're, uh, we're, we're just hanging out in the darkness of performance. And, and we think, you know, before God, that I've got to do enough to earn his favor. Uh, and that's a horrible place to be. Okay, that's a, a horrible place to be. It's like being the hamster trapped on the wheel, and you're just spinning and spinning and spinning, and you never, ever know if you've gotten there. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning, about people we know and care about who feel that pain, that, that angst. They just don't know if they've ever done enough. It's, you're, you're, you're in darkness. You feel the judgment. You're always wondering, have I done enough? And the great good news of the gospel is that Jesus has already done it all. There's nothing left for you to do. Those three hours of darkness and forsakenness by God, that was enough. God didn't save back a little bit of judgment for you. He didn't say, I'm going to put most of my judgment for your sins on Jesus and the cross, but then you better shape up and deal with this other sin yourself. He didn't hold me back. Jesus was the full propitiation for sin. He, was the full, uh, he experienced the full outpouring of the wrath of God. It was all spent on Jesus. There is nothing left for you. And so you don't have to worry. Have I done enough? Have I worked hard enough? Have I, have I been a good enough person? Have I, have I confessed my last sins? No. If you put your faith in Jesus, there's nothing left for you to do. Now, of course, if you have a, if you have a beating heart and you realize this, then it's going to change your life. Uh, you're going you're gonna to live your life to honor and glorify uh, and, and, and display your gratitude for this one who's done so much for you. But there's nothing you have to do to earn it. There's nothing you can do. Um, and, and even if we, if we come in from the darkness um, in terms of our relationship with God, sometimes we still hang out there in our relationships with people. And we still think there's something I've got to do to earn my acceptance before others. Uh, and that's a dark place to be. Because, again, you're like the hamster on the wheel. You're, you're, you're always wondering. You're always taking a poll of the audience saying, are they happy with how I'm doing? Am, am I pleasing this person? And the great good news of the gospel is you don't have to worry about being accepted by people because you've been accepted by God. When you put your faith in Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit living inside of you. God is pleased with you. He has accepted you. And if he's accepted you, then you're free, free from the fear of others. Which brings me to the second point. The great good news of the cross, there's nothing left to do and there's nothing left to fear. This brings us back where we started. See, Jesus killed death. What you're witnessing in this passage here is the death of death in the death of Christ. It is Jesus defeating, killing death. That darkness, that separation from God, that fear that we all have inherent in our souls. I mean, everybody's afraid of death. Everybody's got that fear of the darkness and the unknown, and we just don't know what it's going to be like. Is there a life after death? Is, is God going to be pleased with me? Is it, you know, what, what, what's there? We're just all afraid. Some people don't admit it, but we're all afraid. But we don't have to be afraid anymore because Jesus has killed death. Jesus took all that darkness, all that judgment that we deserve. He took it on himself. And so there's nothing left for us to fear. If we put our faith in Jesus, we have no fear of death. And we have no fear in life either. 
I mean, some of us, you know, we've, we've, we've accepted that. Uh, we've come in from the darkness on the, on the sphere of death. We've accepted we don't have to fear death, but we're paralyzed by life. I don't, you know, I'm not worried about death, but I am really anxious about how I'm going to pay my bills next week, or I'm really concerned about this health problem, or, or fill in the blank. We're, we, we continue to live in the darkness of fearing life. But folks, the beauty of the cross, again, is that if Jesus cares for you enough, if he cares for you enough to have done this for you, you can be confident that he cares for you enough to take care of whatever it is that you're worrying about. See, there's nothing left to fear because what if Jesus has done on the cross? And this is why, this is why it's appropriate for us to talk about the cross at Christmas time and for us to talk about the cross at Easter and to talk about the cross at you know, graduations and birthday parties and promotions and firings and you know, when you're in the hospital, when you get out of the hospital, when you have a baby, and you know, every Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, every day it's appropriate for us to talk about the cross because it is the foundation of everything. This is where our faith is grounded in the work of Jesus dying for our sins experiencing the God-forsakenness that we deserve, that we might have acceptance with God. So we're going to celebrate communion in a minute here, which is just another opportunity for us to remember and to celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus, which was given for us in our place. So as we celebrate communion, as we go from here this week and celebrate Christmas, I want us to remember and to lift high the cross, the atoning death of Jesus for our sins that liberates us from performance, that liberates us from fear. The gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. It really does change everything. Let's pray. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your body, Lord Jesus, uh, given for us. Thank you for enduring hell that we would not have to. Thank you for experiencing the full judgment of God that we might experience the full pleasure and acceptance of God. Oh Lord, open our eyes to see the truth and the beauty and the glory of the cross that our lives would be transformed, that we would come in from the dark, that we would live in the light and the joy of the feast with our Father. We pray this in Jesus' name.